Hey friends, it's Natasha Crane. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's been a while since I've had a new episode and I want to make sure you know I haven't abandoned the podcast or anything like that. I've just been in a really busy season because I was preparing to release my brand new book, which came out on February 8th. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And I think probably a lot of you already follow me on social media or subscribe to my blog, so you probably knew that. But in case anyone is just listening to the podcast, wanted to be sure that you know as well that the book is now out. I'm really excited about it. I've had so much great feedback from people who are saying that they it kind of puts a description, it puts words to so much of what Christians are feeling today, but maybe they didn't know how to identify and how to analyze. And so I and people are also saying it's been very encouraging to them. And that is an encouragement to me because I wanted to be sure I didn't write a book that was just critiquing culture, but that gives an accurate critique of culture from a biblical perspective and also encourages us as Christians because I know today it can be very discouraging to see what's going on. So really thrilled to see that kind of feedback on the book. If you haven't already gotten it, this is a great time to do so. And also, just as a side note, if you're on Facebook and you'd like to read this in community with other people, we just last week started a read-along in a Facebook group that I created called Faithfully Different. So you're not too late. You can join us there. We're just reading two chapters a week together and discussing. So you can go search that out on Facebook. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode. If you have been listening to my podcast for a while, you probably are aware of the fact that I am usually just here with my mic. It's just me and the mic. I don't have any guests on. I've never done that like a lot of podcasts do, but I'm really excited for today's episode because I have my very first guest. And I can think of no better person to start with than my friend, Elisa Childers. I know that a lot of you are probably already familiar with her, but in case you're not, you have to be. So let me tell you a little bit about her before we dive into this. She is known especially for her writing and speaking on progressive Christianity, but she also writes and speaks on all kinds of topics related to defending the historic Christian faith. She has an extremely popular YouTube channel a huge podcast called the Elisa Childers Podcast. We love our creative podcast names. She's (laughs) the author of a book called Another Gospel in which she recounts her own journey of searching for answers in response to progressive Christianity. I can't recommend that book enough. It's excellent. And I recommend it also in my new book, Faithfully Different in chapter five. So if you're reading that right now, you will see me refer to Elisa in there and recommend her book. I will put links to all things Elisa in the show notes for this episode. So be sure to go and subscribe to everything Elisa does. It's all wonderful. Elisa, thank you for joining me today and for being the very first guest on my podcast. I know. I guess I didn't really (laughs) fully comprehend that. I am so honored to be your first guest. And thanks so much for all the, the glowing introduction there. I don't know what to say to all that, but I'm just thrilled. I'm excited about this conversation today. Yeah. And, and yes, you are making Natasha Crane podcast history. That's a huge thing, right? <laughs> yes. Well, we we have been talking about doing podcasts together for months and months. This has been something that I think going back to even last summer, we were trying to schedule something and we've had so many different ideas over time about what we would talk about. But I think it was in September that we started coming around this idea of talking about a book that we were both going to read through together because this book came out in September. 
And it was on the top of all the best seller lists on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It still is today. So we're not talking about a book that has come and gone. This is still a very popular book. It has over 2,000 reviews, averaging five stars on Amazon. It's called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk finding a faith that makes us better humans. And it's written by an author that's well-known in progressive Christian circles named John Pavlovitz. And when we saw this and we saw the title of it, we thought this is such a common refrain. This is something that you hear so often in progressive circles about if God is love, then you should be this way, act this way, say these things, do these things. And so we thought, what if we took this book, read it together, and then talked about the core themes that are in it, not because we want to do a book review. This is not a book review. We, we know that you probably don't care about this particular book if you're listening to, to this podcast. But what we want to do is use it as a case study. Use it to share some quotes and some examples of what progressive Christians say so that we can look at it from a biblical worldview perspective and say, here's where this would line up or not line up with what the Bible teaches. So it, in a lot of ways, it's important to understand that this book that Pavlovitz has written, it's very much an in-house discussion for those who are progressives, who already assume that the Bible is not the inspired authoritative word of God. So he's kind of preaching to the choir, which we can appreciate. We write books, you know, that, and we write blog posts, and we have episodes that preach to our choir of people who seek to have a biblical worldview and to consider things from that perspective. So we're just looking at it and saying, hey, there are a lot of Christians who want to have a biblical worldview today who also get a little bit unclear about why some of these progressive ideas can sound nice, but are actually not consistent with what the Bible teaches. So we want to bring some clarity to that today. So from that perspective, Elisa, before we dig in, and look at several of these big themes and ideas and, and talk about them. There might be some people listening to this who are new to this whole idea of progressive Christianity and are saying, well, what exactly does that mean? So can you just explain, and I know this is going to be your 1000th time explaining this because you always <laughs> have to introduce this idea, but can you explain what is progressive Christianity and why do people need to even be concerned about it? Well, progressive Christianity is a movement that's largely coming up and out of the evangelical church, and it's a group of Christians who are reassessing, uh, reanalyzing, redefining, and often rejecting what uh, the church has historically taught our core doctrines of salvation. So things like original sin, the idea that our sin would separate us from God, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, his second coming, and the existence of a place called hell. So in progressive Christianity, there's there's a lot of things that they're going to b believe and affirm. It's very fluid. Um, progressive Christians, it's a broad spectrum, but they're very united on the things that they deny. And so those would be some of those things. In progressive Christianity, I would say the primary gospel is not that your sin separates you from God and you need a Savior, but rather you just need to realize that you are already inherently connected with God. You are not separated from God. You don't need an atoning sacrifice to reconcile you to God. And then beyond that, there's going to be a lot of different um, beliefs that fall under that umbrella. But primarily, it's a movement that is, it's not like it's new ideas, but it's sort of new in that it's coming up and out of the evangelical church now. 
Yeah, that, that's a great summary. And I think that it will become clear if you're listening to this and you're new to this. I think when you hear us talking about the ideas that come out of it, it will become really clear that you've heard a lot of these things before. And to kind of understand that it's coming out of this particular umbrella of progressive Christianity. Um, Elisa, can you introduce us a bit to John Pavlovitz? He's the author of this book that we're talking about. He talks about his background in the book. And so he gives us a little bit of a window into how he got to where he is right now in terms of being a progressive Christian. Um, tell us a little bit about that so that we can have appreciation for where he's coming from. Sure. He is a real key figure in the movement of progressive Christianity. He's a pastor, author. He's possibly most well-known up until recent years for his blog. So he was really popular in the blogging uh, aspect of progressive Christianity. In fact, uh, when I give a more thorough definition of progressive Christianity, I quote him quite a bit because he has very clearly defined it. He has blog posts saying this is what progressive Christianity is. And so uh, in my research into the movement of progressive Christianity, um, he's really just right smack in the middle representing what so many progressive Christians believe. And so it was interesting, Natasha, as I read this book, I was thinking all these books I had to read to research for my book, Another Gospel, that interacts with progressive Christianity, I could have just read this one and gotten everything I needed because it's literally just right in the bullseye of what I see the movement teaching, believing, advocating, uh, all of those ideas. And so uh, John Pavlovitz he actually describes himself in this book as uh, a theological mutt. So he came from uh, an obedient Catholic altar boy situation. So he was, he was raised Catholic. Um, he, sort of became disenchanted with that in his teen years, even called himself a hopeful agnostic for a while, moving into what he describes as defiant atheism. And then there's this switch to where he emerges as this in his own words, overconfident United Methodist megachurch pastor. So he went from defiant atheist, and he doesn't talk a whole lot about what connect how he went from atheist to uh, United Methodist pastor. But basically, he pops up as this pastor in the United Methodist megachurch, which I don't know exactly the theological background of the specific church that he pastored. But as we know, many United Methodist churches in America, not so much in other parts of the world, have gone very progressive, and there's just a major split happening there. And so I don't know. I get the feeling that maybe his was more moderate, maybe more in the middle, but but still still holding to some of these more progressive views. Um, but then he says from there, he went to deconstructing progressive to humanist Christian to whatever and whoever and whatever I am today is how he describes himself. So he sort of takes this journey from Catholic to atheist to United Methodist megachurch pastor. Then he deconstructs that into progressive Christianity. And now I guess he's he's gone through another phase of what he would describe as humanist Christian. And then essentially looks like he's not really taking a label as of today. Yeah, so I don't even know if he would – does he label himself as a progressive Christian? Because it almost seems like he would rather just – the ideas, obviously, that he's talking about are very progressive, but I don't know that he actually identifies that way. Do you know? Well, I, I – 
That's tough to pin down. As of a couple years ago, he did, but now he's saying that's a that's a phase that's in his past, and so now he's not taking a yeah. label. But what's interesting is that in the book, he's using tons of scripture. He's referring to these as Christian ideas. So, I mean, I'll I'll leave that to our listeners to decide. But um, but that's very common, by the way, in the, in the in the deconstruction movement is to move out of taking a label at all. And um, I noticed here he's putting deconstructing it in the present tense. That's something that's like a continual process that he's describing is still happening with him. So uh, the hint there is that there's more, he's got further to go on this journey. And so he's not landed, but I don't know if he ever will claim to land because as we're going to discuss, the idea of certainty or landing on something like that is something that is sort of rejected outright as an assumption in the book. Right. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. And I, and I think it's important to just reiterate what you said that you've read so many progressive Christian authors with this being sort of your your specialty that you've worked on and that's this is very much representative of the broader ideas that you will hear in lots of books, which is why we wanted to focus on this. It's not to to beat up on a particular book or anything like that. It's really just to to look at it and say, okay, these are the ideas that are being put forth that you're going to commonly hear in progressive circles and here's how they compare with the biblical worldview. So with that in mind, we have kind of gotten together and said, well, here are the big themes that we're seeing here. And we're just going to walk through them one by one. And we've picked out some quotes that we thought were really representative of the idea. So I don't want anyone to think that we're kind of crafting these themes of something that is not being said or reading into what's there. These are the actual quotes from the book that can kind of serve as a representation of the thinking here. So the first idea is this. Love is all that matters. So just from the title of the book, you get that obviously this is the overarching claim that love is the only thing that matters. It's the most important thing. So here are a couple of quotes. Here's the first one. He says, if it doesn't substantially or partially compel you to be more compassionate, more loving, more aware of people's pain and more moved to alleviate it, it's probably not made of God stuff. And it's not going to matter to the vast majority of human beings you encounter who consider religion to be, at best, superfluous and, at worst, toxic. So so that's the first one, where if, if you're not being more compassionate in, in his definition, which we're going to get into, and more loving, then this is not made of God. This is a really big claim. So let's come back to that. Here's, here's the second one. He says, in fact, the single conclusion... The single conclusion I've come to as a result of all my study and prayer and wrestling and preaching, the sole fixed truth I can hold on to is that faith shouldn't make you a jerk. For me, it means that your theology is only valid to the degree that your life is loving. Beyond that, your preaching and proselytizing are largely a waste of time to people, especially if they don't have a religious affiliation or share your worldview. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. We could yes. do an entire podcast, I think, uh, um, just on the things that he's saying there. But I, I think that it's easy to hear this and to say, well, that uh, kind of sounds right. I mean, we we want to be loving, right? We want our lives to reflect the love of God. But what he's saying is, pick up that line. Your theology is only valid to the degree that your life is loving. So there, there are two things that I want to hit on here. The first one is that when you say that, that's a major claim. Mm-hmm. We can't just bypass that. We can't just go on on by and say that you're it's only valid to that degree because that's a theology too. 
And, and I think that a lot of people don't realize that you can't just claim it's only about one thing because that is still a claim about the nature of theology and what we know about God. But how does he know what he knows? That's the big question here. And I'm going to leave that one hanging a little bit because we're going to come back to that with another point that he makes. But here's the big one I want to focus on for right now is how do you define love? This, this is the million dollar question that is left hanging really in the book. It's how do you define love? For Christians who have a biblical worldview, we want to define love the way God defines love because he is our authority. He is the one who defines everything, who tells us what is true about reality. He is the authority on that. But if you take away the authority of the inspired word of God and you say, well, this is not where I'm getting my my information about what's true about the world and what's true about reality, where does that leave you? How are you going to define what love is? And I thought it was fascinating, Lisa, that through reading this, he never takes a moment to just specifically state or set off in some kind of box in the book, like, here's what love is. Um, but you can sort of come to a conclusion about how he sees the nature of love in his own definition um, by by pulling the pieces together. And I would say, for him, love means affirming whatever a person wants to do or believe as long as they're not feeling hurt by it. You can't make someone or you can't allow someone to feel hurt because once you do, once someone says, I feel hurt, I'm in this position, then you are the problem. You are the one who's not loving. So that's that was kind of the definition that I got. But, but what do you think? How would you characterize, based on everything he said here, his definition of love? Yeah, and that's really the question. I would say I agree with yours, but I would maybe add to it because there's an interesting dynamic going on here in this quote that you read. Uh, Faith shouldn't make you a jerk is what he said. Now, for most, and I'm going to try to be really charitable here because this is even something he acknowledges in his own book about himself, but to the vast majority of let's say, conservative Christians who hear, who are familiar with his demeanor on Twitter, familiar with his blog, um, they're scratching their heads over that statement because he's largely perceived to be extremely aggressive toward conservative Christians. Very, um, I want to be as charitable as I can here, but Aggressive is a good word, very anti what we have to say, and we'll really use a lot of shame tactics to shame Christians for what they believe. And so when he says your theology is only valid to the degree that your life is loving, like that is a confusing statement for me coming from him if his definition of love is only what you just said, because I I think that in a way it is, unless what you believe— contradicts what he considers to be good or socially right, you know, his social justice views and things like that. Because he's—and he even acknowledges this, that he'll get texts from people, why are you so angry? And he even acknowledges, I am angry, and here's why it's okay for me to talk this way. And it's very confusing because— If we have this subjective definition of love, which he seems to have, he's catching that cultural definition that you described, um, which really bottoms out into massive intolerance because he's really not including in that definition 
people who might hold to a more historically Christian theology. In fact, he he continually through the book characterizes people who hold those views as fearful, um, bullies. Uh, I don't know if he uses the word bullies, but um, con- they're wanting to control people. They're motivated out of trying to convince people uh, through fear tactics that they're going to, you know, be tortured in hell forever. And so there's this really interesting dynamic here with some of his phrases. He obviously doesn't consider what he's doing to be in the category of being a jerk or being um, unloving. But that's why I think it's so important that we have an objective standard by which we define love so that we can judge, well, is, is what he's doing loving or is what I'm doing loving? Because otherwise, it's just his opinion versus mine. And then that doesn't really help anyone because then we're not we're that's going to that's going to be very intolerant in the end whereas if we have an objective standard of love we can say okay here's what love actually is now as a christian there can be somebody brand new in their faith that maybe has a massive anger problem, and that's going to be a continual part of their sanctification process. That's maybe not going to get fixed overnight, right? There's Maybe they're still having outbursts, but the Holy Spirit's working on them, and maybe those become less and less over time. Maybe it's a really slow process. But if we only judge, um, you know, just based on this kind of subjective, fluid definition of love, then really according to his logic, then that guy has bad theology. Whereas I would say actually that guy has good theology because what he's trying to do is conform himself to the standard of what actually love is with the Holy Spirit's help. It, you know, we're all on that process of sanctification. But uh, I, I think that it's, yeah, I agree with you. I think that is his definition. I think that's what he thinks his definition is. Yeah. But yes. when it really plays out, it's actually really unloving and really tolerant when we actually look at biblical definitions. Yeah, that that's such a good way of putting it that I think that, you know, that that is what he thinks it is because that's what he's putting forth and claiming in the book, but at the same time, he that's not actually playing out in all areas. It is very one-sided like you're saying, and there are a lot of mischaracterizations which we'll we'll talk about later um it, that come back to people who disagree with him. Um but help help people understand because a lot of people are confused on this this topic of love and but we don't want people to feel hurt. We don't want people to feel unloved. So what do we do with that? Help people understand what the Bible's definition would be of love. How does that differ from this kind of Pavlovitz understanding? Right. Well, and this is where we have to, as Bible-believing Christians, take the whole counsel of Scripture. You know, we can't just pluck one little verse like progressives love to take when Jesus said, um, you know, the, the greatest commandments being love, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And they'll just take that and say, see, Jesus is just saying it's all about love. You don't have to worry about anything else, which is, you know, when you really dig down into what Jesus is saying there, he's actually affirming all, all of the Ten Commandments because if you love God, you're not going to have idols. You're not going to put other gods before him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal. You're not going to commit adultery on your spouse. You're not going to uh, cheat on, you know, you're going to cheat and do all this stuff. So it's, it's really, I think, really oversimplistic to say, oh, well, Jesus said the greatest commandment is love, so we're just going to do, you know, define that however we want and go about our way. We have to take the whole counsel of Scripture. But a great passage to go to would be 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul goes through the what love looks like in action. Love is patient. Love is kind. We all love that stuff. Like, we love those definitions of love. But it goes on to say, love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing. 
love rejoices in the truth. So according to the biblical definition, if somebody is celebrating something that is not true, the loving thing is to not affirm that thing. The loving thing is to rejoice when truth is spoken, but to not rejoice in wrongdoing. And then, of course, we know from Ephesians, we are to expose, take no part of the, the works of darkness, but, but expose those things. All of that is tied in together with definitions of love. If we love people, we are going to want to take captive every lofty thought that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. But sadly, we live in a culture where that is perceived as being unloving or intolerant. And so it's it's just very difficult because it's sort of based on this movable, shifting definition that's going to change constantly based on what culture thinks is good in the moment. Yeah. And if you're not going to rejoice in wrongdoing, you have to have an objective basis for understanding what is wrongdoing. If you don't have an objective basis for defining right and wrong in the first place, then you can't possibly avoid rejoicing in the wrongdoing and celebrating what's good and right. So that's that's where it has to be rooted in a knowledge of God. And I think, it, and I wish I had this right in front of me right now, but I think he actually says in the book that the greatest commandment is to love others. That's, that's actually not accurate. And that's pretty much the source of all of the difference here between a biblical worldview and a progressive one, because Jesus explicitly says the greatest commandment when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God. And the second is like it to love others, but there is an ordering there. You can't love others and know what it means to love others unless you first know what it means to love God. And when we miss that, then we are set off into a sea of relativism because like, like you're pointing out from first Corinthians in that passage, you, you can't get around truth and identifying wrongdoing and, and all of these things, unless you know what is right and what is wrong. And so I think that that's so telling to say the greatest commandment is to love others. And I, I might be paraphrasing that. I'd have to go no, back. No, you're right. And, and, well, and I was looking for the quote here because one thing that stood out to me too is when he talks about loving your, you know, loving God and loving your neighbor, he adds as if it's a biblical command, love yourself. And that's hmm. not a part of that. <laughs> and he just adds that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is fascinating. So really, this point about love, and, and like I said earlier, I think we could do a whole episode just on this first idea, but I want I do want to go on to the other ones. But the key point to take away is that love has to be defined. We can't assume in today's culture that everyone agrees on what love means, because for the Christian with a biblical worldview, our understanding of love has to be rooted in who God is and the truth of who we are and the relationship between us and what he calls us to do. And so we have to remember that the world is going to use the word love in some very different ways. And you, you see that play out really throughout this book. So let's go on to a second idea. And this is, this is very related, but it takes on some other implications. Here's idea number two. God pretty much only has one attribute, and that is love. And I'm not quoting him here. This is a, a paraphrase of the ideas that we're finding in the book. But what you see over and over is the claim that God is love which of course we agree with. God is love. There's no disagreement on there. But the God that you read about in this book in, in a lot of progressive writings is very one-dimensional. And there are lots of attributes of God that are talked about in the Bible. 
We never see things about God being holy or about God being just and and caring about sin and just the whole aspect of his holiness and being set apart and what that would mean and what it means for us. This is just sorely lacking, I think, in this discussion of God, because if you only look at God from this one perspective of saying he's love, you're going to miss so much else about him that matters. And that really becomes a big problem as you look at things from a biblical perspective. So just as an example, he has a chapter where he's talking about prayer and the nature of unanswered prayer and the problems he has with prayer now. And he says, I still can't bring myself to declare that any God who is worthy of being God would cause pain in order to reach humanity or withhold recovery to teach them a lesson. So he's he's importing his own view of love here because he's thinking that if you love someone, they're not going to feel sad. They're not Mm going to feel hurt in some way. So he's importing his own view of love also with the single dimensionality of God here being only love. And he's like, I can't understand why a God would do this. But when you look at the fuller Bible and you look at all the attributes of God, you realize that there are a lot of purposes of God that can be fulfilled through the suffering that we have. Not that we love suffering. We, We don't love to suffer. No one does. And we can acknowledge that. But there are a lot of answers to this question of why we suffer and and why that can refine us and bring us closer to God in that relationship. And this is also true when he talks about hell. He can't conceive of why a good God would have a place like hell. Why would God create hell? And, and I'm not going to lie. This is a tough question. It is it is a hard one. There's, there's no denying that. But it starts to make sense in the context of understanding God's nature, not just as being loving, but also as being just and what that means in terms of our sin and that he can't just overlook sin or he wouldn't be just. But you won't get that if your God is only a God of love. So, Alisa, in in reading all of these, these progressive books, what attribute or maybe attributes of God do you think are most often missing from the progressive characterization? And talk a little bit about the implications that that has just on a personal level, that if you start to see God as missing some of the key attributes as revealed in the Bible, how does that affect your faith, even personally? This isn't just a theological discussion. We're not just up in the clouds with this, but this will affect how you see everything in life. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what's kind of ironic about the progressive Christian movement is that, largely speaking, it's very social justice oriented. So they're always talking about justice. Justice, the word justice is very important to them. But when it comes to God, God's attribute of of justice is they don't like that. And that's really kind of an interesting paradox because they don't want God to be just, at least how his justice is defined. They want to redefine that and do it in a different way. But um, they they don't want God to have judgment for sin. They don't want him to punish sin. They, They think that implicates his moral character. And that's fascinating in some ways because they are so justice-focused and justice-oriented, typically speaking. But I'm going to read a quote here from Pavlovitz's book because I think it illustrates this quite well. He says, it's almost impossible to love your neighbor as yourself if you believe that your neighbor is in some unrepentant sin that disqualifies them from proximity to a God you have intimacy with. Now, what he, let's think about what he's actually saying here. He's saying that if you preach the Christian gospel, you're not loving. 
because that is the Christian gospel, that all of us are alienated from God because of our sin. We have this opportunity to, to place saving faith in Jesus and be reconciled into God. But if we tell our neighbor that, um, that's not giving them the good news. That's actually withholding love from them. So I think what that reveals is that there is this real pushback in the progressive world against the idea of God, uh, God being a God of love and justice and wrath— so wrath is one that is largely, you know, just rejected in the progressive world. And I think uh, there's a couple of reasons I think we see this. In progressive Christianity, now I want to I be very clear and say that a lot of the thought leaders in progressive Christianity are very theologically um, knowledgeable. They're biblically literate. These aren't just, uh, you know, sometimes they get characterized as, oh, they just put on skinny jeans and and now they're just, they just want to be cool and put a coffee shop in their lobby. Um, in my experience, that's not the case. A lot of thought leaders are very, very thoughtful about what they think about these things. So it's I, So when I say what I'm about to say, it's not that I think they don't know this intellectually. It's just the way that they talk, the the ideas that they promote seem as if they're separating God into all these different parts. Uh, you know, where, where God, God has this love part and then he's got this wrath part. And like, we don't know how to, to balance the scales of these two radically different things about God. Whereas theologically speaking, God is fully love and fully justice all at the same time. Like there's not an arbitrary standard of justice or love outside of God that he has to live up to in order to be, you know, declared just or loving. Like, okay, God is loving because of this arbitrary standard. His nature and character actually define those words for us, and they're not in contradiction to each other. Um, so, like, to try—people will say, how do you make a resolution between God's love and justice? Like, there is no—they're the same thing. They're literally the same thing. And so I think there's a there's a Croatian theologian that makes this point very well. Miroslav Volv is his name. I disagree with him on, on some things, but I think he really gets wrath right here. And I think he can help us understand why God's love and wrath are essentially um, – they're they're the same. I don't even want to say equal parts because they're not two different parts of God. God is not divided. It's just this is where we get our words for these things. And so here's a quote from his book. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region I come from. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled uh, day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because of love. And I think that that is probably the best way to explain what I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that is so good. I I love how you're pointing out. It's not that we have 15 different attributes that we're like, how do these all fit together? It's just one God, and this is His nature. This is His very nature, and they and and it it's hard for us to express in words what yeah. we're trying to say. But that that is who God is, and so that that's a really great quote. I I love that you shared that. That's a very good example of that. And I, I think when just as individual Christians, if our faith in God, when we start to think of God, it starts getting boiled down to just this one attribute and we leave off the other things, we start trying to make sense of God in ways that all fall around this one attribute. We start to make sense. We start to decide what makes sense and what doesn't make sense according to this one part of God. And again, we don't use the part terminology, but according to that one attribute. And I think that's where we start going off the rails a bit and we can get really confused and saying, well, but this doesn't make sense to me because we're filtering what makes sense through our limited understanding of who God is. And it, it's interesting to me, not to belabor the point here, but it's interesting to me that he talks a lot about in the book about how conservative Christians or evangelicals tend to put God into a little box, that they're limiting God. But really, in in my view, reading his book, he's the one who's limiting God because he's limiting the attributes that he sees of God. And, and that's where you really get into problems because you're not seeing God for who he is in, in his fullness. And that has so many other implications. Mm. Um, let's go on to the, the next, the next idea. And this is maybe this one we should have even started with because it's kind of the foundation for so much of what we're talking about, but here's how I'd summarize the idea. The Bible has some good stuff and lots of bad stuff. We need to sift through it to determine what is good. So I'm going to, I'm just going to read this quote because I think this summarizes it so well. He says, I'm reminding people that to one degree or another, all Christians create a personal redacted Bible. I'm showing them that we can't simply believe or not believe the totality of scripture. It's intellectually dishonest. We all have to sift through it and interpret it and try to apply it as best we can on a moment by moment basis, given what we learn and what we experience. Ultimately, I return to the question, is this passage consistent with the character of a God who is infinite love? And I rest in the conclusion I come to. So this this is a fascinating quote, I think, because... Mm -hmm you know, my, my new book, Faithfully Different, ultimately is so much about what's your source of authority. Is your source of authority God through his inspired word, or is your source of authority yourself? And I make the case in chapter five of the book that ultimately progressive Christians have a very secular view of the world because they do resort to the authority of the self. Yes, they may have more appreciation for Jesus in some sense than people who are purely irreligious, but it comes back to the authority of me, that I'm the final arbiter of truth. And I might use the Bible in some way, but I'm the one who is going to pick and choose. And I think that is so so telling, this question he asked at the end, you know, I'm going to come back to, is this passage consistent with the character of a God who is infinite love? And he comes to the conclusion, he, he rests in the conclusion that he comes to. So it's not... I want to come to what is actually being taught here. I want to come to what is true about reality. It is what am I concluding through the filter I've defined in the first place? Mm -hmm. the, Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us to filter everything through one characteristic of God. Is this consistent with a God who is love? 
the Bible is going to be consistent with a God who is loving and just and holy and all knowing and all powerful and all of these other things as well. So he is the one who has set up his own filter for scripture consistent mm-hmm. with the authority of the self. He's pushing everything through that filter and then he's determining and, and making the conclusion. Now we all make conclusions from what we read. So there's nothing overly shocking about that. Of course we all are, but it starts with your view of the Bible. And in talking today about the difference between having a biblical worldview and having a more progressive view, it comes down so much to this. What What is your starting point for what you believe the Bible to be? Mm-hmm. And from that place, if you believe the Bible to be the authoritative word of God, yes, Christians are going to have some different interpretations on some parts and some different views. We don't deny that. But your starting point is so important. And clearly his starting point is not that's what the Bible is. In his worldview, that's definitely not what the Bible is. And so now I'm going to pick the attribute of God that I think, based on my own perspective and subjective definitions here, and then I'm going to filter everything through it. So Elisa, this whole idea that he talks about with, you can't just believe or not believe the totality of scripture. We all have to sift through it because we're all coming to these different conclusions. How would you respond to that? How would you explain to someone listening who's thinking, well, yeah, but we do kind of have to look and we all make interpretations of this or that. How is that different than when he's saying you can't just believe or disbelieve the totality of scripture? Yeah, that that's such a puzzling line to me when he even says that's intellectually dishonest to say that. And I think my hunch is from reading him what he means. And, and honestly, I'm going to even swing broader and take a look at the broader progressive Christian movement and even the deconstruction movement. There is a, a, a definite theme threaded throughout those movements, which have lots of overlap, um, that scriptural is is morally dubious and they will post every verse they think is morally dubious on Twitter and on all these different social media platforms. But here's the thing that's so bizarre about it, Natasha, they're the most wooden literalists when they read the Bible, if they're wanting to disprove it. Uh, In one hand, you know, he's saying we have to hold these things lightly. We have to recognize when there's figures of speech. We have to recognize different things about it. But when he wants to use it as a weapon, it is literal. And if we don't believe the literal interpretation, if we don't believe, uh, and this is an exaggeration, but, you know, if we don't believe Jesus is in a physical door because he said, I'm a door, then you're not a literal, you know, then then you just have to let it all go. And it's just, it's really kind of silly to me because I can easily and with total intellectual honesty say that I believe the totality of Scripture. But in saying that, I'm not saying I fully understand the totality of Scripture or that my interpretation of every verse in the totality of Scripture is the correct one. But my goal as a Bible-believing Christian should be to keep working, keep working, um, you know, grammar, hermeneutics, to try to get to the author's intent, to conform what I think to what the Bible is actually teaching. Now, none of us are going to be perfect at that, but I think it's intellectually dishonest, frankly, to say that you can't say you believe in the totality of Scripture if you don't see it exactly how he does. It's kind of what he's doing. He's saying, if you don't see Scripture as I do, then you're being intellectually dishonest to say you don't believe in its totality. And I I just, 
I call foul on that. I think that's not – I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's true. And um, there's just this real simplistic – I don't th- – I mean, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if he really has this simplistic of a view, but it's what he's putting forward in his book is that he has this very simplistic view of what Christians think the Bible is. And it's a little bit puzzling because, I mean, you could pick up any – just pick up Wayne Grudem. Pick up any conservative – systematic theology and just go through the bibliology section. And it's not that controversial to say that, yes, we God is ineffable. We can't fully comprehend him. Uh, language we use about God is going to be analogous because we are limited with our vocabulary. We're limited with our intelligence. God is God and we are not. We are fine with mystery where there's mystery. The scripture leaves some things mysterious. We're good. We're cool with that. But there are some things that are a lot more clear. So why would we assign mystery to a part that's clear? I mean, it's just this is such basic stuff. It's really hard to understand what he's doing here, if I'm honest. Yeah. And I think that it, in, we can't read into his motivations in it, of course, but I think that it at least is an, it's an attempt perhaps to sound humble, to say, yeah. hey, we're, we're all doing this. It, you know, even if we're saying, hey, this is a mischaracterization, I think it sounds humble to people to say, you know, we, we all have different interpretations of this and that. And, and people can hear that and say, well, yeah, I guess that's true. But it, it's it's disguised in this kind of um, this claim that we're all doing the same thing of, of picking and choosing, whereas the starting points are so different. And and so I, I think I think that's the issue. But then it also, like we said before, it also plays out so differently. And when you actually read the book, he's saying we all sift through and decide this. So ultimately, the authority is each individual. But if I have sifted through theoretically, in his eyes, if I've sifted through and I've looked at it and I said, well, I think that Jesus claims to be God. (laughs) I think that he claims to be God himself in the flesh who died for our sins, that he's actually the savior of the world, that we should be going out and making disciples and that people need to be saved through Jesus. If I've sifted through and that's the conclusion that I've come to, well, he's going to have a lot of problems with that. And he shows that he has a lot of problems with that in the book. He thinks it's ludicrous. If I believe in hell, because that's what Jesus taught, and I believe that there is this final judgment that we all need to be thinking about, mm-hmm. he, do- he doesn't like that. And so what about me sifting through and finding that? Even though he has no objective basis for looking at it and saying this is right or wrong, because we're all sifting through, if you accept the parts of the Bible that he doesn't accept, then he's going to look at you and say, this mm-hmm. is wrong. That's so true. it is it is another sort of internal conflict, I think, in, in what he's talking about. Um, idea four, the only thing, and this is kind of like what we've been talking about a little bit, but the only thing we can be certain of is uncertainty. And in progressive books that I have read, this has come out just left and right. It's, it's always there in some way, shape or form. Here's a, a sample quote. He says, that's why a working theology of love matters so much. When we lead with gentleness, it decreases the chances that we will bulldoze someone with self-righteousness because we honestly believe that we're no better than they are and no greater authority on anything. So there's some truth in here, right? We want to be gentle. We want to be gracious in how we're presenting truth. But when he's talking about a theology of love, 
love is so much deeper than just being gentle. And he, it's an equivocation here on these terms where he he's treating them as if they're the same because, again, in his own definition of love, it means like no one's feeling bad about what you have to say. And so he puts the terms together and it can it sounds good, but it doesn't actually work. And we don't want to be self-righteous. We want to see righteousness based on God. <laughs> we want to see mm-hmm. righteousness based on God's standards. So what he gets to, though, at the very end of this is we don't want to ever come across as if we're a greater authority on something than anyone mm-hmm. else. And I think that's, this is really a common mischaracterization that if Christians are sharing something from the Bible and we're sharing it as if something someone else needs to know, then we think we're an authority, but we don't. We're the messenger of God's truth because we believe he's the authority. We believe he is the one who has created the world, that has given us life, that has given us purpose. We, we believe that he's the authority and we're sharing that. But in this worldview that he's talking about in his book, when you're coming from that perspective that you don't have a Bible, that's the word of God. We have to keep remembering this, I think. He doesn't have a Bible he believes to be the authoritative word of God. And so he's just having to come at this from kind of a best guess. Yes, it's a best guess scenario. So there's all this uncertainty. We can be sure of that uncertainty, but we can't know anything with confidence. And so from his perspective, it's really arrogant if you put forth something as objective truth that applies to all people because you have no way of knowing that. But that just presupposes his own worldview. So as yeah. Christians with a biblical worldview, I think we have to just be clear that if we are treating the Bible as our authoritative source of knowledge about reality, that we can be certain of a lot of things. And it's not arrogant to think that within our own worldview, because if God is who he said he is, and this is his word, then we're accepting what he says is true about the universe he created. That's mm-hmm. a pretty big deal. There's no arrogance involved in that. So it's interesting because then he also goes on in the book past saying, you know, no one's a greater authority on anything. But then he also says things like this. He's talking about Christianity. He says, I can no longer be tethered to this thing that's so toxic and so painful to so many. I can't wade through any more bad theology and predatory behavior from pulpit pounding pastors who seem solely burdened to exclude and to wound and to do harm. Of course, we don't support predatory behavior either, but he's lumping that into what he calls bad theology. How can anyone have bad theology if you have no objective basis for good theology in the first place? Mm -hmm. You, You can't. And so there's just this recurring theme of we can't be certain of anything given his own presuppositions about the Bible, but at the same time, he's very certain. So this one is baffling. You you said that a little while ago that something else was baffling to you. And this one is really baffling to me because I think if I were to decide tomorrow, I no longer believe that the Bible is God's word. I think, I want to think that I would draw that to the logical conclusions that we're talking about here and just say, you know what? There's not much we can know about reality. I think I can look at general revelation and know that there was a creator and, and a life designer and that there's some basic moral law, but there's not much we can know about reality. So I wouldn't call any theology bad or good because we just don't know. There's no objective basis for this knowledge. I would like to think that that is the conclusion I would come to if that were to happen to me tomorrow. But that doesn't seem to ever be the conclusion in anything I have seen from progressive Christians when they walk away from the historic Christian faith. It's always moving toward a certainty about what God is and what God isn't and what he wants from us and what he doesn't. But there's never an acknowledgement, hey, we don't have any objective basis for knowing. 
can, can you enlighten me here? Why <laughs> do you think that is? Where does that come from? And why don't you see more of just people acknowledging the logical implications if you don't have an objective basis for your knowledge? Right. And this is something that your audience probably should be aware of because I agree with you that we are the messengers, right? It's like when people say, well, why are you so against this or this? It's like, I'm, I'm just telling you what God says, right? I'm just taking the word of God and telling you what it says. But what your audience needs to be aware of is that there is a strong push. There are books being written right now. There is strong messaging on social media to convince Christians that even the idea of biblical inerrancy, biblical authority, um, the, the, what we, what I might call the historic interpretations of really core issues of the gospel. These are being painted now as the result of white supremacy and misogyny. For example, the inerrancy debate. Uh, as we know, the word inerrancy isn't in the Bible. Of course, neither is the word trinity. But the word inerrancy and the word trinity are words that people came up with to describe things that are taught in the Bible, um, to, to, to describe doctrines that Christians have historically believed. You can go all the way back into the earliest church fathers, even Jesus himself, and understand nobody thought the, the Bible had errors in it. But Often they'll say, even this, this debate over inerrancy, there are people making claims right now to say even that idea, that was a bunch of white guys that got together to try to keep women oppressed in the church, the doctrine of inerrancy. So what we have to understand is that when we say things like, I'm just giving you the message, they're saying, no, 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 you're just giving me the message of oppression. You're giving me the interpretations that have been put forth to keep women and minorities down. And so we need to deconstruct all of that. And so their objective standard is going to be things like sociology and history and who has emerged as the most oppressed as a result of some belief. So this is why right now, Natasha, there's a huge push for egalitarianism. Now, personally, I think complementarianism, egalitarianism is not a primary core salvation issue. I was actually raised in an egalitarian church. I'm a complementarian now. Uh, but I know egalitarian Christians who would be like, we're not on board with what people are saying right now. And, and the messaging is that complementarianism as a view is inherently oppressive to women. So it's not just like we can disagree, like, oh, you know, I think this is right, and I think this is why complementarianism is, is false. It's complementarianism is oppressive. That's why we have to dismantle it and deconstruct it. So that's what people have to understand when we say, oh, well, here's what Paul says about a woman's role in church. It doesn't matter that you think that. In their view, you're just reading that through this lens of patriarchy and white supremacy, and that's why you think that's what it says. And so this is, and I know, it, like right now, people are probably listening going, I give up. I just, whatever. I give up. <laughs> like, what do I even do with that? Um, you know, and I don't know. I, I It's very difficult to try to talk when we're just in, in the episode we did together on my podcast, we talked about these reality tunnels from this uh, YouTube video with a couple of atheists and a Christian. It's like we're in different reality tunnels. We're not even deriving what we think about the nature of truth from the same place. And so it's almost impossible to have conversations at this point because we are deriving what we know about the world from completely different planets. 
Yeah. And it, it's so interesting because people don't stop to think, well, where am I deriving this entire view? Because if you're going to say something's oppressive, again, if you don't have an objective standard for defining oppression in the first place, you should theoretically understand and recognize that that's still subjective in how yeah. you're defining. You might say that I, you know, uh, this is what I believe to be true, but in the same breath, you should be able to say, but I recognize that we don't have any objective basis for defining this. So right. I understand right. that your opinion is equally valid, but that's not what we hear today. Right. And I and actually talk about this quite a bit in Faithfully Different about this whole idea that what's consistent with secularism is to be able to acknowledge that everyone's views it would be equally valid, but that's not what we see. Instead, right. we see people saying that, no, 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 this is inherently problematic. L like you're saying that this is inherently, we all know, we don't have to talk about philosophy. We don't have to talk about objective bases for things. We don't have to talk about anything. We all know that this is inherently bad. So it's interesting because it's just, it's sort of an appeal to, we all know it's mm -hmm. an appeal to what's mm -hmm. inherently good or bad, but no one is stopping to think about what's my objective basis for that. Does it exist? Yeah. And do I know what it is? Right. No one stops to do this. And so you're right. It is so difficult to have these conversations because we are in such different tunnels and not everyone's tunnels are even logically consistent within themselves. That's and that right. makes it hard. And I just will pop in with one little thing here, just to to piggyback on what you're saying here and why why objective truth and objective morality is so important to comprehend. Because like even take like take the example of complementarianism. If um if if we don't have a objective standard for what oppression actually is, then I can see why they would say, oh, just complementarian. Women don't have the equal status or they don't get to do all the same things men do. So therefore, that's unequal and that's oppressive. But if we know how the how God defines oppression, then what we can actually do is say, well, the teaching itself is not abusive. It's not oppressive. It can be used for oppression and has been used for oppression. Right. Certainly it has. Like, we can have that discussion. We can look at case studies where, hey, this person claimed complementarianism and used that uh, in an abusive way to oppress women. Certainly, we can acknowledge that and still, but still say the teaching itself is biblical or, you know, whatever the, whatever the teaching, that's just a test case. But it's, if we don't have an unmoving standard, then it's just like you said, it's going to be whoever the, whatever the most people are saying. And also just how it makes people feel. Well, these women kind of felt like they were offended that they were told they couldn't be lead pastors. So they're interpreting that as oppression. And so we have to get rid of it. And that's just a terrible way to think. Because if we just go by people's feelings all the time, I mean, th I think about my kids. They want all kinds of stuff that's not good for them all the time. And I'm sure they feel really oppressed sometimes by my rules and and my disciplines. But um, I mean— we're adults. Like this is we got it. We got to be thinking better than this. I think. Yeah, it doesn't make it any easier. A lot of people are listening, going, "So how do you cut through that?" There, there's not an easy answer. <laughs> we have no solutions here on the podcast. <laughs> there, yeah. It's not. It, it we is don't, not we're figuring it out too. We don't know. <laughs> it, but what it does require is that when you understand that these are the issues, I, I think that it requires us to think more deeply about what we believe and why we believe it. And so we can better resist ideas that don't line up with the Bible. 
And again, I just want to reiterate, this is an in-house discussion for Christians who want to have a biblical worldview. We having an apologetic about why we believe the Bible is God's word. That's a whole other conversation, but we're coming at this saying, if you take the Bible to be God's word, this is what's consistent with it. And so that that's what we're trying to, to clarify here. Let's look at it at another idea that comes up really frequently in this. I know from our conversations, Lisa, that you've said that this is really prevalent amongst mm. progressive, but the measuring stick of religion is if it's helpful rather than if it's true. This is this is fascinating to me. So he recounts the core tenets of the biblical storyline, and then here's what he says about it. He says, it's been my story since I can remember, but I'm less convinced than ever that it's helpful in producing better human beings, he's talking about Christianity, or making the planet more loving. So the, the implication there is that it's all about whether or not something is helpful, whether or not you should you should throw that out. And I have to admit that this is really hard for me to understand. This is another one that leaves me scratching my head because I don't want to believe anything or live according to any idea that actually doesn't correspond with reality. Things that are true. Helpful is such a subjective term to use as a measuring stick. I mean, what, you know, going off of what you said, like my kids, they would find it really helpful if I would clean their room for them. Sure they and would. If I would do, <laughs> and if I would do their laundry, that would be incredibly helpful to them, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what is best. Um, or, you know, what is true about the way the world works, any of those things. And so when we're looking at, okay, what is the worldview that I want to live my life around, the question has to be, what is true? I don't want to live according to a worldview that I might personally find helpful because I could be totally wrong. I could find something that's totally actually unhelpful to be helpful depending on my experience and my background and where I'm coming from. I want to know what's true about reality. So help me understand this one too. This is another please enlighten me, Elisa moment. Why do you think that helpful in particular, that word is so much the measuring stick for religion when it comes to progressives as opposed to just what is true like what if the bible's true then what yeah i think it's sort of that impetus or that instinct in people that it's it's like what your book is all about to move from the authority of god and the bible to the authority of self because if you look at other religions and in belief systems there's a lot of steps that are very practical. It's very pragmatic in a lot of ways. Like, look at Buddhism. It's very pragmatic. Um, it, it's like it, it, the path to enlightenment. It's it's to make your life better and more um, peaceful and have that inner peace. It, it's like the, um, you know, the therapeutic moralistic deism, or is it moralistic therapeutic deism? I think it is. Where, it, it, like, God is this giant therapist in the sky that just wants you to be happy and nice, and he's not going to, like, bother. He's not going to tell you who you can sleep with. But if you need something, he'll be there. But otherwise, he's just going to kind of let you live your life. And it's all about being happy and finding things that are helpful, finding uh, – that's why it's so fascinating in progressive Christianity and in the deconstruction movement. There, There's so many therapies they'll turn to. Like um, I remember there was a time, and maybe it still is, but I, when I was listening to a lot of progressive podcasts, lots of progressives were doing the sensory deprivation tanks. They were – and I'm not saying, you know, there's inherently – I don't know much about that. I'm not saying there's something wrong with doing that, but it's like they're they're looking for anything but Jesus to try to find that pragmatic answer. Like, what's going to help me in my life? There's lots of talk right now about uh, magic mushrooms and hallucinogenics and finding enlightenment and healing and even um, for your mental health through 
psychedelics. I mean, this is like we already did all this in the 60s and we saw the end game of that. But it's like there's there's this this real pragmatic approach. Like I, I have this problem in my emotional realm or in my psychology that I need to fix. And so I'm going to find something to fix that. And it's really that impetus to move away from the really uniquely Christian idea that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And the people, when people don't like that message, it is going to become about what's helpful or what's going to help make me the most happy in this life or what's going to give me the most amount of peace or, um, you know, my definition of love or my definition of what it means to do justice in the world. If you divorce yourself from the idea that you are actually broken, you yes, you're made in the image of God, absolutely. Um, but we've all distorted that image in one way or another, and and that's really what the problem is. The problem isn't that you're unhappy or that you're not being helped enough by certain things. The problem is that you're a sinner. And once you can realize that the solution for that is the gospel, placing saving faith in Jesus, being reconciled to God, your maker, who designed you for a purpose— then your impetus is going to be toward finding things that are just going to sort of put a Band-Aid on things, make things feel better, and be more helpful. I, I, that example you used with your kids is perfect. And my daughter, and, and I'm, my tendency is to do it. Like, it's just easier if I just yeah. do stuff for her. It's so much easier. Like, we're both happy. What's wrong with that? Well, everything's wrong with that. I'm not helping her at all when I do everything for her. Even though yeah. I'm like, I can do it better and faster, so I'm just going to do it. I mean, that's not good. <laughs> and so we ha I think that it's just, it's just that impetus to deny that sin and redemption narrative of the Christian gospel. That, that is such a good answer. It, it's actually so closely related to the, the next one. It's like you answered it just perfectly to lead us to the sixth idea because the, the sixth idea that you really pick up in this book is that people are fundamentally good. So you right. see that where exactly your answer, you see that worked out in his book. So that's a really interesting kind of piece that you're putting together there. I, I love that. So in, in chapter 16, for example, he talks about how he wants to start a church called the Church of Not Being Horrible. And he says, we would gather every week to celebrate the inherent goodness of people. There you go. And, and, and so right there, that's, you know, that is that is such a different view than what the Bible gives us in terms of who people are and what our very nature is. And it, it's interesting because I, I had pulled the same quote that you pulled out earlier. So I'm just yeah. going to read it again because it falls in this category so well. And he said, it's Im almost impossible to love your neighbor as yourself if you believe that your neighbor is in some unrepentant sin that disqualifies them from proximity to a God you have intimacy with. Now, of course, this is a mischaracterization too. We we're not, you know, disqualifying anyone right. from being close to God by saying we want them to be God. close to God. We want them exactly. to receive the gospel. Yeah, exactly. It's the sin that's separating them from God. So there's there's this great irony here. But you can see this whole idea that if you're coming from the assumption that people are fundamentally good, then you're going to feel like you're doing something wrong if you're coming along and telling them that anything about them is not good then you're bringing them down. <laughs> you're bringing them down from a position of goodness. But if you presuppose based on your worldview that people are actually inherently sinful that you're talking about, you're bringing them up by telling them the truth about yeah. their sin such that they can be reconciled to God. So this is, this is just really interesting because if you're going to sift through the Bible using his own words, if you're going to sift through the Bible and you're going to sift out the parts about how we are sinful and you're going to just hang on to some kind of idea, which you actually don't even get out of the Bible. This is just an untethered idea. I think that mm -hmm. people are fundamentally 
convicted. You can't even get that from the Bible. But if you're or starting from human that, history or from a just a cursory <laughs> observation of human history, anything, <laughs> you're absolutely right. You somehow he, he, there's this idea that we are fundamentally good, but you end up with all kinds of different implications there. And so that's yeah, that that's a really interesting dichotomy that leads to so much. But I kind of just said it, but can you just, t I don't know, is there something you would add to that in terms of what does the Bible say about our human nature other than, you know, we're sinful, but what are, what are maybe a couple of examples of how the Bible talks about this that would show that God has not said we are fundamentally good? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 if we go through all through scripture, we're told that our hearts are inherently sick. We we are, uh, insanity is in our hearts throughout our lives. The Bible says, Jesus said that out of the heart flows all manner of of sinful uh, inclinations, and he just lists out a bunch of things. Uh, we, we know from the Psalms and from uh, just all throughout Scripture, we that's where we get this doctrine of original sin and this sin nature that gets passed down, is that we there is something deeply inherently broken about us. And I think the one thing I would add to what you said, because I probably couldn't say it better than that, is that we have to we can't miss the idea though of the starting point which is that men and women are made in the image and likeness of god and that's something that there's a bit of a straw man i think in his book like he 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 said at one point and this is a paraphrase cuz i don't have it in front of me but he said oh you've probably been taught that only certain people are made in the image and likeness of god but the implication there is that because somebody wants to take maybe a sin struggle and make it an identity then we're saying because because we're saying their identity they're not made in the image of likeness. No, every person who's ever been born has been made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, that's why we know racism is wrong. That's why we know abortion is wrong and murder is wrong and hurting other people is wrong. Uh, we know this because of that doctrine of the Imago Dei. But, and I mentioned this earlier, but, but we have to realize, though, part of the Christian story is that we've all distorted that image with sin. There's an Old Testament scholar, Jay Sklar, that describes sin as an acid that mars and deforms everything it touches. Um, so the image of God is not lost in people who have particular sin struggles or might be even an unrepentant sin. Um, that's a huge foundational doctrine of Christianity. Um, but the, but that's the cure is the gospel. The cure is repent, put your trust in Jesus, and let him work that sanctification process in you. Um, but it's, there, it's just if we tell people Oh, you're inherently good. I mean, I just, you know, we can take an extreme example. Um, when I was a little girl, there, you know, we always lived in fear of the Night Stalker. There was this serial killer in the San Fernando Valley. And I just remember, oh, what if he comes to my house? And like, what's the answer for the Night Stalker? Just to say, well, just embrace the inherent goodness inside of yourself. What it, that's such an adolescent answer to me. And then, but we always want to think, well, I'm nice. I'm better than him. Well, I hope you're better than him, but there's somebody better than you. And there's somebody better than that person. And there's somebody better than that person. And so now you're getting lower and lower on the, on the scale here. But even the best person you could think of falls short of the glory of God. They, they, have, they have broken that, stand, that standard of God's per, holy perfection and needs to be reconciled to God. And so um, I think for people who know they're sinners, this is a beautiful message because we're giving a cure. But if they want to deny the disease, then a, a tough cure or what is perceived as a tough cure is, is going to be, I don't want that. That's harmful to me. I don't want that in my life right now. Right. 
Yeah, no, that 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 is so well said. I love that. We're we're sort of running out of time here, so I want to end with just hitting maybe briefly uh, three mischaracterizations of evangelical Christians in mm. the book. And, and we talked a little bit before recording about what we even mean by evangelical. So maybe this is a time to quickly just say what what do we mean by that when we're talking about Elisa? When we say evangelical Christian, what what are we saying? Yeah, words, right? <laughs> words are tough. <laughs> define so, this for us. Yes, so that's no I want to define it though because um, yes. I want to be clear. Like even when I'm when I'm talking about progressive Christianity, I'm not my uh, position is not to defend evangelicals, right? I'm trying to defend historic Christianity, going back to Jesus and the apostles, tracing authentic Christianity through history. Um, so movements will come and go. Uh, I do identify as an evangelical. Um, I don't think that everyone has to identify as an evangelical in order to be a Christian. Like, I want to make some of these caveats here. Um, the reason I am an evangelical is the classic understanding evangelicalism arose really as a way to preserve historic Christianity from some of the liberal scholarship that was coming out of Germany. So it's characterized by Things like a strong emphasis on biblical authority, the atonement of Jesus, um, e uh, evangelism. Uh, you can all go back and look at that. But I want to make that clarification because a lot of people—in fact, I did a podcast with Neil Shenvey on this—the definitions of what people think evangelical is are so sporadic. Even people who identify themselves as evangelicals, the definitions are all over the place. And so when I say it, I'm talking about um, evangelical beliefs like those core things of blood atonement, biblical authority. I'm not talking about like a political alignments that we're seeing or conflation with, uh, you know, America or anything like that. When we're saying evangelical, we're talking about going back to the historic and classical understanding. The reason I don't want to let that go because of maybe some of these other things is because if we in America abandon the term evangelical, then we're kind of abandoning our brothers and sisters all over the world who hold that that word, but it doesn't mean to a lot of people what it means here. So like, I'd rather try to redeem the word evangelical than abandon it uh, because of our brothers and sisters all over the world. But it is a problematic word for sure. Yeah, and, and so that's a helpful clarification because I think some people are, you know, they're they're not clear on exactly what we're saying with that. So I just wanted to make that clear up front because with the things that we've been talking about so far, we've been talking about how the progressive view is very different than a biblical view so that we can understand for those of us who do want to have a biblical worldview, how how that differs and we, we need to keep that clarity. But there are quite a few things in his book that bleed over that aren't just about presenting his own view, but that we would say mischaracterize the evangelical view as Elisa just defined evangelicalism. So I just want to hit on these briefly because I know we're running out of time, but I do think it's really important because these are common mischaracterizations. I see this all the time and it really is frustrating. I, I want to think that I am trying to understand people within their own worldview box and understand where they're coming from. And at the same time, I, I so often see people who are mischaracterizing what we believe as evangelical. So the first one is that there's this really strong current, and he starts the book off really this way, mm -hmm. of, of suggesting that evangelical beliefs are to be outgrown from or matured out of. And, and this is really interesting. He, he says, for example, if you've evolved or matured or progressed in some fundamental way, you know that there's a grieving in that growing and outgrowing and losing some of the old story, the security of that story, the sense of self that story gave you, sometimes even the characters of that story. 
So it, it's it's sort of condescending. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it is condescending because theoretically you could speak in terms of, well, here's what I believed before. Here's what I currently believe. And just objectively compare those belief systems and say this, it's a before and after. But instead, you so often see this, this idea that there's, it's not just inferior in some way, but that it's more childish, that mm-hmm. it's it's more something that you grow from. And, and that's interesting to me because you also see this from atheists. The Like Richard Dawkins, for example, he had a book that came out recently in the last couple of years, I think. I have to look at the actual date, but it's called Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide. So atheists see it this way, that we have these childish beliefs. And I actually talk a little bit about that in Faithfully Different, but also progressives have that sense. Why do you think that is? Why not just an objective comparison of here's what I believe now, here's what I believed before. Why is it more about maturity and growth? Yeah, I I don't know if it's a way of justifying these kind of radically different new beliefs, uh, but I see this all the time, especially in the deconstruction movement. So I've shared my story of deconstruction in my book, Another Gospel, but there are uh, several people I've seen who will call me out and say, you know, you didn't really deconstruct or she didn't really deconstruct. And the reason they have for that is not because my journey of unraveling was really any different from them, but it was my reconstruction because I reconstructed back to what they would consider to be these archaic childish beliefs. Uh, you got to go back to the drawing board. You didn't really deconstruct because you wouldn't still hold these beliefs if you did. And so I, I saw a tweet recently where a guy said that because I hold what he perceives to be and what he defines to be oppressive views about sexuality, I didn't really, I don't understand deconstruction. And it's just fascinating to me because it, it, there's this assumption that if you don't change to their actual morality, then you are less mature, which you're right, is a very condescending position to be in. And again, just to remind people, we're not, I'm not asking anybody to conform to my morality. I do my best to conform to what I read in the Bible. I hope others will as well because I believe it's truth. And so it, it, I think there's a really different thing going on there. But, um, but we do see, I don't know what, what we're going to do about it. We just have to get a thick skin and realize that, you know, if, if you're going to hold that view, then every martyr who was burned alive or tortured or uh, endured incredible imprisonment and suffering for these childish beliefs was just silly and immature. And I think that's a really—I mean, I want to be so careful not to assume motive, but I don't know how we could look at that and not call it arrogance. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I think that it, it's very difficult because I think that like, what you're saying is just so spot on that this goes back to our earlier conversation about they're assuming that there is an inherent knowledge that what we believe is wrong, that we should all be able to see that, that it becomes self-evident. And I guess, you know, if you're coming from a place of childish thinking, you don't see things for what they are. So if they're, if you just come to their side and you see what they think is inherently right or wrong, then now you're on the more mature side of things because you've really thought through it all, which is, um, it, it is a sort of arrogance. It, it's, it's really interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I think what I would want to leave listeners with also is that, you're not growing out of beliefs or Christianity or evangelicalism. It's not about, let me back up on that. I I think that a lot of the times the reason that they say that also is that we just need the comfort and security of Mm -hmm. a tight box of beliefs that we're afraid. We're fearful if we disagree with them. 
Exactly. That it's out of fear and we just like the certainty. Well, it's not, I, I'll admit, I do like certainty about things. I do like having knowledge about things. Sure. But that's not why I'm a Christian. It's me. It's what comes first is my belief based on looking at the evidence that the Bible actually is the word of God. And if it's the word of God, then I'm, I'm not just trying to put things into a box. This is the box God's given. So mm -hmm. I'm going to accept what's in that box. And I like certainty and I like knowledge, but that's not why I'm looking to the Bible as my source of knowledge. And so I think that sometimes they take sort of these childhood traits, or at least what they think of as terms of like black and white thinking. You see that criticized a lot um, and, and just any kind of desire for certainty. And they're saying, oh, well, that must be why you believe in the Bible. If you walk away from that, and you don't treasure that so much, then now you're going to come along with your beliefs. But people need to really understand that you're you're not immature or childish for thinking that God has revealed some specific answers and some are black and white. There's a mm -hmm. lot of mystery, but there are black and white answers in the Bible too about who God is and who we are and, and all of these things. So while those attributes are sometimes attributed to people as being childish, that's just simply not the case. Um, the question is, is the Bible the God of word and what evidence is there for it? Not how people feel about that being the case or not the case. Um, another mischaracterization, the second one you just brought up, actually, that evangelicals defend their beliefs because they're fearful. And he says, Christians are worried about other religious traditions having a voice, lest their mm. one true God be offended by people worshiping in different ways. This is just, you know, this is the kind of one that you read and you just say, but that's not what we're saying. We're not asking not for people all. to yeah. have a voice. We're the ones saying we shouldn't have a cancel culture in the right. sense that it today we this is not about suppressing voices in fact we're, we're the ones actually advocating for religious freedom for other religions yeah. exactly yeah. there's no suppression of voices here just because we're claiming that objective truth exists and is knowable and that's what they're really responding to the fact that we believe that there is this objective truth we're not suppressing your voice by claiming objective truth exists we're inviting everyone to come along and say, well, what's, what's the evidence for this? And yes, state your view, but also state the evidence for your view. Let's be truth seekers, right? So just because you say that someone is wrong because you believe that uh, that is objectively the case doesn't mean that you're suppressing anyone's voice. And I think this ties back a lot to critical theory and some of the social justice issues that we were talking about earlier, because there's just such this sense of, you know, don't marginalize people by not letting everyone have this platform to speak. And it gets conflated with these issues about the existence of objective truth and the implications of that. So, you know, why, from your perspective, why is there such this characterization that we're afraid in particular? It's not, it's not just that we don't want other voices to exist, which I kind of just addressed, but that we're actually afraid of them. What is that about? I think it, it stems from their idea of what we believe about hell. I, I, this sort of this, I see this repeated in a lot of progressive books, and it's in this one as well, that we try to, we're actually, in their view, doing our evangelism and doing our persuasion out of trying to convince people that they should just be terrified of hell. And so, the, and, and you know, listen, there's maybe some validity to that throughout the church history where Christians have, like in the 80s and 90s, I think we saw this a lot in altar calls. I write about this in my book, based on mischaracterizations of hell, where we think in some way, you know, there, there were some fear tactics. But to just expand it to every Christian, if they believe in a literal hell, it's just this, it's this fear-motivated thing that we, as long as we can just get everybody scared enough about hell, then they'll become Christians. 
But any really thoughtful Christian that I know, uh, like you said, we wrestle with that too. I don't want anyone to go to hell. Um, it, it it's part of the it's part of the piece of the puzzle. I have to keep in the puzzle because it's on the box top that God gave us in the Bible. So I'm trying. I'm doing my best to figure out how that all that works together myself. And we all are, and we wrestle through it. But I I it, it's like it's like he's speaking foreign words. I don't understand why he would say that about most Christians. But what's interesting in the book, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, is that a couple of times when he talks about himself as a more conservative pastor, um, that he said he did that. And he said he did it intentionally. He would weaponize those things to try to scare people into coming into faith. And that was a really interesting admission that I was—I I mean, I just remember I was out walking listening to it, and I thought, he he did that? Like, like that's—well, <laughs> no wonder— you you would reject that, you know, because um, yes, it's a part of the puzzle, but like that that he seemed to say like that's what he did on purpose. So maybe he's assuming that's what all the other pastors are doing. But um, it's definitely a an assumption. When I was in the class at the Progressive Church that I wrote about in my book, I remember one time the pastor saying, "Hey, you guys realize like eighty percent of Christians disagree with the things we're talking about in this class. Why do you think that is?" And the only answer they could come up with was fear. They're just like, it just has to be fear. And so I just think that's just a go-to sort of motivation assignment because they can't understand why we don't agree with them on this stuff. Well, and you see that also in the labels that we get, you know, homophobia or transphobia. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes a phobia that that we're scared of things. I genu- I genuinely have a phobia of elevators. I am super claustrophobic. Yeah. I don't want to go in an elevator, right? That's a genuine phobia, but we're not phobic of things that maybe we disagree with. And, and so you see that that assigned motivation of fear in other areas too, which is really interesting. Let's let's finish out on a third mischaracterization that we've touched on a couple of times here, but just to, to close out on this, evangelicals think they're in a place of authority or moral high ground over others when they call out sin. This is another major mischaracterization. And he, here's, a, here's a quote. He says, Christians armed with hate the sin as their declared impetus often rationalize their discrimination by comparing themselves to a parent giving a child tough love, missing the Olympic level arrogance of suggesting that adult human beings whom they often have no relationship with or knowledge of require their oversight or discipline. Wow. You know, reading that, I I really... it, it does make you feel angry when you're mischaracterized in that way because it's not just an understand misunderstanding of a whole world view, but it's really it, it's an accusation, right? It, mm-hmm. It's really um, it, it's re- it really is accusing us of being having Olympic level arrogance, as he says. So I'd like to think again that if I weren't a Christian. I would at least understand that this is not an accurate characterization of Christians. I would like to think that I would look at it and say, well, okay, I don't believe the Bible, but, you know, Christians, they think that this is actually God's word mm-hmm. and, you know, he he knows what's true about the world and they're saying that this is what they think is true, even if I think that's, you know, ridiculous. I'd like to think that I would be able to see it that way in the same way that, you know, I have Mormon friends and Mormons believe that, you know, I'm going to end up in a different place for eternity than they will. I'm okay with that. I'm not offended by that. I don't think that they think they're morally superior to me because they think that this is what they believe to be true about reality. So, this is another why. Why is this so often a misunderstanding? 
that non-believers have. And this isn't just progressive. This this is pro- non-believers in general so often think that we think we're on our moral high horse when we share what we believe God has said. Why not understand that, well, this is our worldview. This is what we believe and be okay with being you know, in disagreement about it. Why not just say that? Why does it become we think we're the authority? Mm. Well, it's interesting. I'll just point this out before I go into a quick answer on this. But, you know, we kind of made a comment where we thought what he was saying, um, and just in a more general sense, kind of an arrogant view. And then he's characterizing what he thinks we believe and is saying it's an arrogant view. If you have no objective standard for morality for these kinds of definitions— then it's just our opinions versus each other, right? But if if you root yourself in objective truth, knowing that pride, arrogance has an objective meaning, then, you know, then that's what decides between us. But I just wanted to point that out because if we don't have it, then all day long, we're just going to be like, you're arrogant. No, you're arrogant. Well, you're <laughs> unloving. No, you're unloving. That's why this matters. But um, the yeah. why, <clears throat> because Natasha, I truly believe, I mean, I don't know. We, the, I'm not going to speak for you. This is my view, but you know we've we've seen a lot of recent controversy over uh, comments like that John Cooper made about deconstruction, saying we're going to declare war on this Christian deconstruction movement, defining it as a group of people that have left the faith and are actively trying to tear down the faith of Christians and trying to convert Christians away from Christianity. And I agree with him. I think that is the why here. Because you're right. It's not just like, well, I don't believe this anymore, but hey, you know, you do you, I'll do me. That's good. I mean, no, they're writing books. They have platforms. There's YouTube channels, podcasts actively trying to dismantle. Right now on Twitter, I saw uh, tweets from deconstructionists, like a tweet storm of accusations against the Bible. Why? Well, I think because there's an evangelistic zeal to the movement. I think that um, there is a end game. There's an agenda there. This is my opinion. You know, I'm not speaking for anybody else on this, but I do think that there's an end game here. They have megaphones now. They have the social media platforms. Um, In my next book that's coming out, I really compare the social media platform to the Tower of Babel. Like, we are back at the Tower of Babel, where where all, everybody has, you know, everybody can communicate, and it's, it's just... I think it's very evangelistic, and I think that's the why. I think they are wanting to convert Christians away from Christianity. Maybe not to a specific— they don't care where you go. Like, they don't right. care if you end up in progressive Christianity or if you call yourself an atheist or a Wiccan or what. I don't. They don't care. But they just think Christianity is immoral. And I wish that sometimes they would just—there would be some admission of that, you know? Like, look, I think this is really bad for the world, and here's why I'm trying to tear it down. But they'll say, no, we're not trying to tear it down. But they are. That's why I think we see so much— of this language. Sorry, I got strong on that. You can edit it off if you want to, but. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's great. No, it, it is so true. And I've given you a lot of tough questions here because I keep asking you why questions and why questions are. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know. And it's, it, 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 they're always difficult because you're, you're sort of trying to get insight into something that's, you know, outside of yourself into people's motivations and why things are the way they are. So these are tough questions. 
and we have to grapple with them. But I also know there are the questions that a lot of Christians ask. You know, I, I get the why question all the time for yeah, people like, too. why do progressive Christians even call themselves Christians? Still questions like that. And of course, when we answer those questions, it's just a caveat for this whole episode. We're not saying that we have 100% the answer that is applying this to every individual out there who, you know, identifies as a progressive Christian or anybody else. We're just talking about some of the general trends that we're seeing in culture, in progressive Christianity, outside of progressive Christianity, this this is a broad stroke. So we don't want any, anyone to listen to this and be like, well, that's not my reason. Here's my reason, because there are going to be a lot of different stories out there, right? But I hope that this episode has been helpful to you in really just getting more clear on what people are saying who are coming from the progressive perspective and how that differs from a biblical one. And we also just want to make sure that you don't feel inferior in your beliefs when you hear these things about how we're arrogant and we think we're the moral authority and our beliefs are childish, all of these things. I, I really feel passionate about wanting to help Christians with a biblical worldview understand that that's not the case and here's where it's coming from. So, Elisa, we could talk for hours probably about all these topics, but we will leave it there. Thank you so much for being my first guest. You've been amazing. Loved having you on. Thank you for being here. I loved it. Thanks so much for honoring me with getting to be your first guest. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge honor, right? And thank you guys for listening so much. And if you have a chance, I would so much appreciate it if you could take a minute and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps a lot in helping people find out about the podcast. If you don't already subscribe, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can be notified of future episodes. Thank you guys so much. And we'll talk with you soon.